and Chicago and, and up into Canada and Toronto and to the West Coast and L.A. and to the East Coast and New York City and overseas and Seoul and Mumbai. And, and God is bringing people to Ann Arbor from all over the world and then sending people from Ann Arbor all over the world. And what would it be like to plant a church in Ann Arbor that crosses generations but seeks to raise up the next generation? A, a church that's for the, the skeptic and the seeker and the doubter that, that presents the truth of the gospel that doesn't compromise on God's Word, but also seeks to have compassion for those uh, who are looking for answers and struggling uh, to find satisfaction and fulfillment. To be a church that sticks it out, that loves longer than people can mistrust us, that, that seeks to be faithful uh, to seeing Jesus treasured above everything else. In fact, that's what we desire, and that's what we believe, that people need more than anything else in their life is to have Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure of their lives. It's not in, in silver or gold. It's not in any accomplishment that we've made. We just sang it. What we need more than anything else is Jesus. That we wouldn't get distracted with the, with the gifts and miss the giver and miss the Savior. And our heart at Treasuring Christ Church is to do just that. To see Jesus treasured and His church established in southeast Michigan, across North America, and to the ends of the earth. And as we go about doing that work, what brings us here today and uh, what has excited me about uh, your pastor's even encouragement and support of me in this process is that planting a church, just like leading a church, is something that really we are insufficient for. We're incapable of doing God's work in our own strength, in our own power, in our own wisdom. I've, I've, I've had some of the best theological training and equipping I could ask for at Liberty University and at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I've been in great churches, but do you know that none of those things make me sufficient for the work? We are dependent upon the help of God's Spirit and the prayers of God's people. Uh, to plant a church, uh, I've often said, is doing something that you know will fail unless God shows up. And that's what we're asking, that God would show up and that you would help us, you would gird us up by praying for the work uh, that we are going to do in Ann Arbor. And so it's a real joy for me to be here uh, with you today uh, to share not only the heart of Treasuring Christ Church and what we hope to do in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but also to share with you God's Word. And we're going to be in Isaiah 66, the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to open there. Isaiah 66 is where we are going to spend our time. As you, as you hear me talk about Treasuring Christ Church and the work we want to do in Ann Arbor, uh, you, may, you may ask yourself, and it's a legitimate question, why church planning? There are many churches uh, throughout North America that need, uh, that need pastors, that need leading, that need to be strengthened, that need to be revitalized. Why, why church planning? Why, why be ascending and supporting church of those who are being sent out? Why, why consider uprooting your life and your family? I, I, I never know how God might be working, but perhaps there's even someone here today that the Lord would stir in your heart to be a part of what God is leading us to do in Ann Arbor, or, or in another not too distant day from now that God would stir in your heart to go to another place uh, and another church plant, or, or to go overseas on the international mission field to, to share the gospel with a people group who have no access to the gospel. Why would, why would we do that? Why would we be willing uh, to disturb our lives to do this work? Or, or frankly, why would we be willing to just go out of our way to love our neighbors uh, and to, to seek to share the gospel with them? Why would we... Uh, like my friend Elizabeth, not give up uh, on, the, on, the, on the neighbor who, who continually rejects our offer of an invitation to church or, or even just an, 
a time to, to get together to share more about our faith. What, what compels us to live our lives intentionally on mission for God? What compels us uh, to go and plant treasure in Christ church? What are we seeking? That's the, the question that I want us to answer. And in one short word, we could say that it's this. Worship. That's what we're after. Worship. In Isaiah 66, we see how true worship and mission come together. How true worship is the defining mark of God's people as well as the goal of God's mission. Worship. True worship. How, how God defines worship is what should mark our lives. What should mark us out as God's people in the world. As well as the goal of what we're seeking in our missions, in our church planning, in our sharing of the Gospel. As I was studying this passage, I was reminded of one, one pastor who put it like this. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. The first time I read that, I thought to myself, well, what do you mean? I thought that's what we're to be about, right? Jesus gave us the marching orders. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the, the, the mission that God has given us. But that's not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions. Because in missions, we're aiming to see all people everywhere treasure Jesus above everything else. It's the goal of what we're wanting, that, that a person would go from death to life to treasuring the stuff of this life to the One who created this life and creates new life. It's the goal of missions, but it's also the fuel of missions. Because passion for God and worship precedes participation with God in His mission. Passion for God and worship precedes participation with God in His mission. Missions begins and ends in worship. That's what we're after when we look at God's mission. And that's what we see in Isaiah 66. So if you have your Bible, Isaiah 66, I want us to begin by reading verses 1-4. through four. We'll work our way through the passage and our time together. But uh, here's God's Word to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 66.1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. Isaiah 66 is the end of a long book. A series of prophecies from Isaiah uh, that God speaks through Isaiah to the people of Israel. Now, if you've read the book of Isaiah, you, you probably, like me, uh, have struggled a little bit through it to, 
to follow along with where exactly Isaiah is going, what exactly God is doing. Sometimes you're like, is God speaking to Israel right now? Is God speaking to another nation right now? Should I, should I repent or should I, what should I do right now? Uh, what is, what's happening as I read the book of Isaiah? And one of the reasons that's the case is because Isaiah unpacks for us God's judgment as well as his deliverance for his people. Isaiah is written in the 8th century, but, but one of the unique things that we see about God speaking through his prophets is that he speaks to his people in their time, but also speaks about a time that's to come. And so one of the things that makes Isaiah complicated to read is it's like you're standing at the base of a mountain range, uh, but all that you can see are kind of the peaks of the mountain. You can't see the contour of the mountain range. It's like that when we come to the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's hard to, to distinguish between the visions of judgment and deliverance and, and when exactly God is going to, uh, to bring these things about. So in the beginning, uh, the first section of Isaiah, when you look at chapters 1 through 39, we, we kind of see uh, Isaiah speaking uh, to the people of Israel and the nations that surround them. It's speaking to, to Israel in their day. And, and then we begin to see in the latter half of the book from Isaiah 40 on how God's speaking about a day that's to come, about exile that's going to come, and he's warning them, he's warning his people of their rebellion and their hard-heartedness, that if they don't repent, God is bringing judgment. He will put them in exile. But we also see in the midst of this promise of exile and judgment, this promise of future deliverance, that God will deliver them. I I believe you have been working through the book of of Nehemiah, and you've seen how how God led his people into exile because of their rebellion and their sin, and, and God was faithful in his promises to bring them back. And And even as they come back into the land, there's still something that's missing. There's still something that they're longing, looking forward uh, to to what's going to come. Uh, And we see in Isaiah that there's this this hope of a a Messiah, of a Savior, of a servant, of a Davidic king who's going to come and deliver God's people. Uh, But that king is nowhere to be found in exile and nowhere to be found after exile. In fact, when we get to the Gospels, we see Israel still waiting on that king, on that servant, on that one who will deliver God's people. And so Isaiah unpacks for us from the 8th century all the way up until the time of Christ and even to the second coming of Christ. uh, We see these prophecies that speak of what God is going to do in the book of Isaiah. And so as we get to Isaiah 66, we come to the the final word uh, that God has regarding His judgment and deliverance upon His people. And Isaiah 66, much like the whole book, addresses two different groups in Israel. There's the uh, false, unbelieving Israel and the true, believing Israel. And and Isaiah 66 stands as a warning against false worship, as well as an exhortation to true worship and participation in God's mission. So true worship is what drives God's concern as He speaks to His people here in Isaiah 66. So what is true worship? What does it mean to to worship God as He desires? I want us to see three things from Isaiah 66. The first is that true worship delights in God's Word. True worship delights in God's Word. We we see the emphasis here at the beginning of Isaiah 66 that God is not so much focused on the location of His worship, but on the person who is worshipped. He's not so much focused on where His presence resides as much as on who enjoys His presence. He speaks about the temple in Isaiah 66, verse 1. You see how it says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house 
that You would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be. God is transcendent. He's bigger uh, than us. He's glorious. He made all things. How can He be contained in any one created thing? That doesn't mean that He makes light of the temple here in this passage, but, but we see in the, in the context of Isaiah 66 that part of God's judgment is he's going, to, he's going to bring judgment upon the temple, the place where His presence has resided. He's going to withdraw His presence and the temple will ultimately be destroyed first by the Babylonians, then later we'll see by the Romans. He's he's showing us the emphasis isn't on where His presence is, but on who enjoys His presence. So he shifts their focus to this issue of the heart, of what it means to worship Him. And, And listen to the way it says it. It says, this is the one to whom I will look. Who does God have His eye on? Who is God looking at with His blessing and His favor? Who has God's attention? And the one object in all of creation, amidst the vast expanse of all that God has made, the one object that has His attention, that secures His gaze, is the person who is humble, contrite, and trembles at His Word. That's who has God's attention. Do you know that you don't have to be exceptionally skilled and gifted to have God's attention? Do you know you don't have to come from a great pedigree background to have God's attention? It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what you've done. The one who has God's attention, His gaze, is the one who trembles at His Word. True worship delights in God's Word. Here we kind of see, uh, if you will, the ingredients of true worship in verse 2. We see that true worship includes humility. Humility is the posture of our heart that puts ourselves under the authority of God's Word. That says, I don't know better than God. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sufficient in myself. I'm, I'm humbling myself before God. Acknowledging my need for Him. And, and contrite in spirit is similar in that it means that we recognize our spiritual inadequacy. It means we don't have too high of an evaluation of ourselves, too low an evaluation of ourselves. We see ourselves in light of how God would see us. We know that that we are sinners. We know that we are inadequate. We come not based on anything that we could do, but merely upon His grace and His mercy. And then to tremble at His Word, this last ingredient, humility, contrite heart, and a desire for obedience. To tremble at God's Word is to desire to receive and obey His Word. To tremble is to, to desire to receive and obey His Word. It's to be ready to receive it and ready to walk in obedience to it. That's true worship. That's for all of God's people. This is the person to whom God would look upon with His favor and His blessing. That we would be humble. That we would be contrite, recognizing our need. And that we would desire to receive His Word and walk in obedience. It reminds me of what Paul said of the, first, of, of the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, he said that the Thessalonians received uh, His preaching, His message, Uh, not as the Word of men, but as it truly was, as the Word of God which is at work in you believers. That that we would hear God's Word spoken and that we would receive it in humility and contrite heart and desire to obey. But but verse 3 begins to show us the ingredients of false worship. If we have true worship, we also see false worship. And 
And, and honestly, verse 3 is somewhat of a strange verse. Uh, it, it's a contrast that's being made. God's, God's putting acceptable worship practices like slaughtering an ox, sacrificing a lamb, making a grain offering, alongside false worship. Uh, things like killing a person, breaking a dog's neck, sacrificing a pig, blessing an idol, things that would be rebellious and unclean and disobedient. And, and what, what I think verse 3 is, is showing us is that because of the rejection of God's Word and the hard-heartedness of God's people, even when Israel went to go to worship, their worship was as if it was false worship because their hearts were far from God. They, they were making a memorial offering to God, but they might as well have been sacrificing a pig because their hearts were far from God. And, and we see the ingredients of false worship is that we would follow the desires of our own heart. In verse, in verse 4, it says that they have chosen their own way. And at the end of verse 3, they've chosen their own way and their soul delights in their abomination. Do you know that what you choose to do follows from what you delight in? What you delight in, the things that you love that stir up your heart, that, that ultimately sets the course for the decisions that you make. They desired, they delighted in things other than God and therefore they chose to walk in disobedience to Him and followed their own desires. What we choose flows from what we delight in. It's like Jesus said. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's what we delight in that moves us to act. But we also see in verse 4 that they've dismissed God's Word. God says, ironically, they chose their own way. I will choose harsh treatment, judgment, discipline for them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't listen. And because they've chosen their own way and done what is evil in my sight, they will experience and receive judgment. They dismissed God's Word. Now here's, here's a word of warning for us. Our rejection, and if I could qualify that for the believer here today, our indifference, our casualness with God's Word will often lead to blatant disobedience or maybe even worse, empty spirituality. To go through the motions but to be far from God. True worship delights in God's Word and if we're to delight in God's Word, then we must walk in obedience to it. We can't dismiss it. We can't put it in the back seat and then pick it up on, on Sunday afternoon and then pick it up the next Sunday morning. We, we come to God's Word with a desire to hear from Him, to respond in obedience to Him, to, to see what He says about how we should live and, and how we should think and how we should love and that our life would be defined by what God says and by what God calls us to. So let me ask you, do you delight in God's Word? Do you yourself in your own walk with the Lord delight in God's Word? I thought You might be thinking, Michael, I thought we were going to talk about missions, not my quiet time this morning. <clears throat> Do you know that the latter flows from the former? That real mission, whether it be with our neighbor across the street or in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, or to the remotest part of this earth, it begins with you before God in His Word. True worship delights in God's Word. And if I could just encourage you, it's a, it's a lifelong pursuit of growing in God's Word. And here's two things that you have, to, you have to hold together. Delight and diligence. 
the diligence or the duty to, to get into God's Word daily and to hear from God. Sometimes it feels like a drain. Sometimes it's difficult. You're not getting as much out of it as you want or you're not growing at the rate that you desire. But here's, here's a, a thing, the, I think the, the reality of how uh, God works in our lives. As we remain diligent to come to God and His Word, we find delight in God. As we find delight in God, it presses us on to be more diligent in the Word. And as we grow more diligent in the Word, the greater our delight and worship in God is. And the greater our worship in God is, the more diligent and faithful we become in the Word. And so sometimes you just have to, you have to drag yourself along and say, as the psalmist says, awake my spirit, O Lord. Stir up my heart, incline my ear. God, give me a desire for You that I don't feel today. Let my eyes behold wonderful things in Your law. Give me an undivided heart and mind that I may walk in obedience to You. That's the cry of the psalmist. Are we better than the psalmist? No, we we need to cry out like that to God as well. And as we cry out to Him and walk in diligence in God's Word, we begin to find delight in God. And that's where true worship is found. True worship delights in God's Word. But also, we see in verses 5-17, through that true worship is sustained by God's character. Life can be hard. Anybody testify to that? Life can be difficult. It, you can get weary. Uh, and, and we need to know that there's something that will sustain us. And here we see that God speaks an encouraging word to His people. He speaks in verse 5, He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. He's speaking to those who are true believing Israel. Those who tremble at His Word. He says, listen up. Here's an encouraging, comforting Word to those who tremble at My Word. And what He's going to ultimately say in verses 5-17, through He's going to show us how God is going to act on behalf of His people. He's going to show us how He's going to bring judgment on those who reject Him. How He's going to be faithful to His promises. How He's going to comfort His true people. And in in all of the actions of God, we get a glimpse of His character. God's acts, His work, reveals His character, who He is. And who He is sustains us. It's the character of God that undergirds our worship, that we can count on Him, that we know He is true, that He is faithful, that He is good, uh, that sustains us in the difficulty of life. And, And we see that very clearly Uh, throughout verses 5-17. through Three things I want you to see about God's character. First, we see that God's justice upholds our worship. In verses 5-6, through we see that God's going to judge unbelieving Israel. He says that there are actually some amongst Israel, these false uh, unbelieving Israelites who mock the true followers of God. They say, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. It's as if there are some within Israel who who believe that their their way of life, their compromises of God's Word or dismissal of God's Word are actually more honoring to God. And they, they mock those who are seeking to be faithful to Him, who tremble at His Word. False worship always produces a sense, a false sense of what is right and true, what is right and wrong. And God's judgment, He's going to say in verse 6 that they're going to be put to shame. There's going to be an uproar in the city and the sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to His enemies. So in your city, Jerusalem, at your temple, you will see 
God's judgment, His discipline upon those who have rejected God and dismissed His Word. And at first that will come through the Babylonians and then through the hands of the Romans. And and God's judgment is beginning with the house of Israel. God's justice uh, will be upheld. But not only will His justice be upheld upon Israel, the false, unbelieving Israel, but here at the, if we go to the end in verses 15 through 17, we see that God's judgment is upon all His enemies. It's a universal judgment that, that He will bring uh, His indignation or show His indignation to, to all of His enemies. In verses 15 through 17, we read that the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger and fury and rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. It's a sobering truth that's found in God's Word that God will come in judgment. Three times in these verses, Isaiah describes God's judgment involving fire. And we see it throughout the Old Testament that God's wrath against sin is often described with imagery of fire, chariots, and storms. We see in the Psalms, in the book of Psalms, it says, Our God comes and does not keep silent. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth below that He may judge His people. God is just. He is holy. Make no mistake, God hates sin. He will not compromise. Though sin may triumph today, the day is coming when God will bring judgment against sin and rebellion. God's justice will be upheld. And, And we have to ask ourselves, how does this sustain us? This truth of God's judgment. It sustains the believing Israel, the true people of God, because it reminds us that God gets the last word. God has the final say. He speaks and makes all things right. Though we may be oppressed or mocked now, God will not be mocked. In the end, He will conquer and reign in Christ. In the end, all will give an account to Him. Though sin prevails now, it will not have the final word. God's justice gives us hope in the midst of our present darkness. And we can count on God's judgment in such a way that we don't have to take judgment into our own hands. We're not the dispensers of God's judgment. We leave that in His hands. We pray fervently. We take a stand on what is right and we proclaim both His judgment and His salvation. God's justice sustains us. God's faithfulness in verses 7-9, through we see how God is going to be faithful to His promises. You go all the way back to Genesis 12 when God chose Israel. Remember what he said to Abraham? He said that from your offspring, I choose you, and from your offspring will be a blessing to all nations. God chooses Israel for the sake of bringing salvation to all people. In verses 7-9, through he says that, that there's going to be a miraculous birth. That before she was in labor, speaking of this plan that God is going to unfold, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? In a nation born in one day. A miraculous thing that's happening. And, and the picture that, that we have here is, is really a picture of God's faithfulness to His salvation. He's not going to forsake His people. It points us forward to a day when God will bring salvation in a miraculous way. A nation will be born in one day. And we're going to see at the end of Isaiah 66 that no doubt that nation that will be born in one day, the people that God is speaking of is both the people of Jew and Gentile. Just like God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3 that God is going to bring about salvation to all nations. And our worship is sustained by this faithfulness. 
We are sitting here today because God has been faithful to His promises. He hasn't gone back once. He's faithful to His promises and He's able to bring them about to accomplish His purposes. And that upholds us and undergirds our worship that we have a God who is faithful, who doesn't change as the shadows around us change, but is forever faithful. And not only does God's faithfulness sustain us, but God's comfort sustains us. In verses 10-14, through we see this reminder or this, this picture of comfort like a, a mother comforting a child. And Israel, though they mourn in exile, is what Isaiah is saying and what the Lord is saying through Isaiah, there's going to come a day of rejoicing. Rejoice with Jerusalem, verse 10, and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breasts, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. This language of, of affection and abundance and care is what God will provide for His people. God is going to do this. Isaiah 40 speaks of God's comfort that He's going to bring uh, to His people. And here we see that this comfort in verse 13, God says, as the one who... As, as, as one whom his mother comforts, now listen to this statement, I will comfort you. God will comfort his people. I think about the difficulty of what it means to be a follower of Christ and this truth of God's comfort, the, the challenges that we face, the burdens that we, we bear in our life, the, the struggles, the prayers, the sighs, the, the discouragement, the weight of it all. All of it has to be seen in light of the certainty of God comforting His people. That God sees and hears His people and He acts. So here at Red Lane and at Treasuring Christ Church in Ann Arbor, sometimes we're going to find ourselves hobbled, struggling um, in terms of not seeing the people that we've been praying for coming to faith in Christ, not experiencing the rate of spiritual growth that we desire, or Maybe we're weary of living in a culture that, that rejects Christ or we're defeated by our own battles with sin. Heavy-hearted for loved ones or friends that haven't yet trusted Christ. On those days, the secret of the Christian life isn't that you can look within yourself and find the strength to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. The secret of the Christian life is that we don't look within ourselves, but we look outside of ourselves and we look ahead at what God is going to do and that's where we find our strength. That's where we find our comfort to push on, to be faithful, to cling to God's Word. We don't lose heart because we're sustained by God's character. So true worship delights in God's Word. True worship is sustained by God's character. And then ultimately we see that true worship is the foundation and the aim of God's mission. True worship is the foundation and the aim of God's mission. So God will not only come in judgment and redemption, but now we're going to see that He's going to gather all nations to Himself. In a way, this is radically profound in the book of Isaiah. So much that we see of God's promises relate to the people of Israel in Isaiah. And here we're going to see God's plan is for for all nations, to gather all nations to Himself. Verse 18 reveals God's purpose for the world. And verses 19-21 through show us the way He's going to carry it out. The means by which He carries it out. It says that He's going to gather in verse 18 all nations to Himself. He says, I know their works and their thoughts, but now the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and see My glory. This is God's purpose for the world. He says that this isn't going to come because of Israel. In fact, it's going to come in spite of Israel. He knows their thoughts and their actions, but it doesn't thwart His plan. 
God is going to gather all nations to Himself. And when will this day come? It's not yet. Uh, we, we look ahead to the coming, we see, of a sign that's going to come and God is going to gather nations to Himself and they will see His glory. This is God's purpose. And so what, what should we think of the mission of God? How do we understand the mission of God? I want, as we look at verses 19-21, through 21, for you to see these four points about the mission of God. First of all, we see that mission centers on Jesus. We see in verse 19 that this gathering of all nations and tongues to see God's glory will come because God will set a sign among them. What is this sign? Isaiah 7 speaks of a sign being given and that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 11 speaks of a sign and the day uh, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for all peoples. Of him shall nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Again in verse uh, 12 of chapter 11, God says, I will raise a signal for the nations and I will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The sign, the signal uh, that Isaiah speaks of is no other than the promised Savior, the Messiah, who is Jesus. And it'll be through His death and resurrection that He gathers people to Himself. It's the Lamb who was slain that has around Him in Revelation people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping Him. The signal, the sign that He will send is Jesus who will gather all nations to Himself. Mission centers on Jesus, but it also means sending. Here we see a reversal. So much that we see in in the Old Testament is that God's people were to be a showcase people. People were to come and see. Uh, But here we're going to see that now God is going to send people out to go and tell. He says in in verse 19, I will set a sign among them and from them I will send survivors to the nations. The, the people of Israel, uh, they will go to Tarshish and Pool and Lud, and those who draw a bow to Tabal and Javan and to the coastlands far away, to those who have not heard my fame or seen my glory, I'm going to send them out. The survivors are the remnant of the true worshipers. They're going to go out to places like Spain and North Africa and Central Asia and Greece. Those are the modern day equivalents of what Isaiah speaks of here. This sending is people, God's people, going out to declare His glory where He is not known. And at its heart, this is what the Great Commission is about. God's people, Him sending His people to go and declare His glory among the nations so that He might make a new people for Himself, Jew and Gentile. Missions centers on Jesus. It means sending and it requires declaring God's glory. What do we go and tell them? We go and declare the glory of God. What does that mean? The glory of His holiness and His judgment. That's where it begins. If we don't know that we're sinners, that we need a Savior, how will the good news be heard as good news? We go and we say we share the glory of His judgment, the glory of His grace and His forgiveness. Though we deserve His judgment, He has sent one to bear it for us so that we would have forgiveness. The, the glory of His uh, reign forever. The glory of a suffering servant who bears the guilt of our sin. The glory of a Savior for for all people, from all backgrounds, from all nations, from all tribes. This is what we go and declare. And Paul says that, that we go and we declare, just as God said, let light shine out of darkness in 2 Corinthians 4, He has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to declare the glory of God? It means to declare Jesus. As we declare Him, people see the glory of God. And then ultimately we see that God's plan 
and sending His people and declaring His glory means that we expand His kingdom. God is working to expand His kingdom. It says that as He goes out in verse 21 or verse 20 that they're going to bring all your brothers from all the nations. Now what a profound thought that other nations are going to be called brothers with Israel, with the people of God. This isn't a reference to other Israelites, but to those who come to believe through their witness. It's a global perspective. God's going to gather new people to Himself. And not only are they going to be brothers, but He's going to use some of them as priests and Levites for His purposes. One author said it this way, that the resources for multiplication of the Gospel are found in the harvest. As we go and we declare, the resources for multiplication are found in the harvest. As we make Him known, as people come to faith in Christ, the Gospel spreads. As we, as we declare God's glory everywhere, and to everyone that we come across. That's God's plan. It's been God's plan in the beginning, and we see it being worked out in His promise to Isaiah and Isaiah 66, and through the coming of our Savior, His death and His resurrection, and the work of the church, that this is what God is doing. And we get to be a part of it. Mission centers on Jesus. It requires sending. It means declaring the Gospel. It means expanding God's kingdom. But Isaiah ends with a sober warning that I want us to heed today. We must see worship and mission in light of eternity. In verse 22 it says this, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From the new moon to the new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And that closes the book of Isaiah. A sober word. Eternity hangs in the balance. Eternity is looming. We see eternal life, new heavens and new earth. Security that's found in the new heavens and the new earth. Worship as we come as God's redeemed people to worship Him. But we also see the warning of eternal judgment of a real place called hell, where death characterizes everything. Those who rebel against God experience separation from His presence and torment where the worm does not die. Those who rebel experience His everlasting judgment. If I could just speak to the believer here today, are you motivated to live for God in light of eternity? There's two places we go. There's two places that people will live forever. Eternal life in God's presence, eternal judgment away from His presence. Will we live with this urgency? Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Will we have that kind of urgency? to live on mission, to make Christ known. And if I could speak to you today, if you don't yet know Christ, eternity is looming. Not, not out of fear should you hear that word today, but out of God's kindness that you would hear the message that eternity is looming, but the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. That if you would turn from your sin and trust in Him, you would have eternal life. Not just on that day, but beginning today. And for all of us, as we consider eternity, this is why 
we plant churches. This is why we live on missions. We live uh, on mission and we plant churches until the arrival of eternity. When God's glory covers the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's what it's about. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. So is worship defining your life today? Defined by God's Word, sustained by God's character, sent out on mission? Is your life about worship? And is it overflowing to missions? That's what God calls us to. And by God's grace, He has given us what we need to answer the call. Let me pray for us. Father, today I thank You for the opportunity uh, to be with Your people, uh, to, to hear from Your Word. I pray, Lord, that You would use it to, to stir up our hearts with a greater delight in You and Your Word, to, to see Your character, that it would sustain us, Lord, to, uh, to strengthen us, to go out on mission to make You known. And Father, today I, I, I know... Uh, the size of the group that's here. I don't know every, every person's story or where they're at today, uh, but perhaps, Lord, you're working in their heart, helping them to see their need for you, uh, that they're more like the false unbelieving Israel who follow the desires of their heart and dismiss your word and live their own way. Maybe they're not antagonistic to you, but, uh, but they seem that you seem far away from them. Perhaps, God, today you're working to draw them to yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to, to see themselves as, uh, as you would see them apart from you, that, that they would see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior, God, but that, that you, would, you would help them to have eyes to see and a heart to believe and a mouth to confess that you are Lord and that you are Savior. And you have done all that we need for salvation, that we might just come and believe, trusting in you who died and who rose again for our salvation. So, Father, we pray that you would move now as we have this time of response that, they, uh, that the, uh, the work of God wouldn't stop here, uh, but you would continue your work in our hearts. God, let us worship you. And for the person who needs to come, God, may they come during this time of response to make known their desire and their need for you. Father, we love you. We ask this in Christ's name.